Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and the opportunity we have to consider it together. Lord, we pray that you would help us understand how we should live in light of what you've chosen to reveal to us in your word. Lord, we are fallen and sinful, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and yet still so easy, easily can misunderstand. So God, I pray that you grant us understanding of your word. Grant me clarity as I try to convey your truth and your message. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I know I've talked about this before, but I believe we have a problem in our society. We have a problem of overreacting to things. You know, in our instantaneous news, I mean, it happens 24-7. We hear news all the time. Social media seems to drive things, and they demand immediate responses to crises, to things that are happening. And so often people will react without taking a step, taking a breath to figure out what the consequences are of those actions. So let's just think about a few things that have happened in the last couple of decades as we consider the way that we have overreacted as a society. Just in the last few years, you remember in the response to the deaths of uh, the tragic deaths, I think, of several African-Americans at the hand of police officers. There were cries for people to defund the police. People wanted the police to go away. And yet they failed to realize, failed to think through what's the ramification of that in a civil society. I'm grateful that in the State of the Union, our president began to change the, began to address that narrative. But there's also, when it seemed like the the origins of the COVID-19 virus that we've all been dealing with in the pandemic, when when news came out that it came from China, incidents of violence against Asians were on the rise. People who had absolutely nothing to do with the origin of this virus, and yet they were ostracized. They were hurt because of that. On a little bit of a lighter note, Back in 2003, you guys, some of you guys remember this, when we were going to war against Iraq and, and if, in Afghanistan, there we, President Bush had created an alliance and there were all these people who were, all these countries who were joining in except one, and that was France. And so f- people in the United States began to say, well, I'm not going to call French fries French fries anymore. Instead, now they are freedom fries because the French obviously are not on board with freedom the, the funny thing is French fries actually come from Belgium. How they get the French name, I don't know. <laughs> but then also, in the late 90s, when it was perceived that the Disney company was making questionable moral choices in their programming and in their days of celebration, our Southern Baptist Convention gathered together in an outcry. And chose to boycott all things Disney. And people were ostracized. People were made fun of. I have a good friend that had was in seminary at the time, and people put stuff on his door to say, "And this is your church." 
I think it's ironic that this year the SBC convention is in Anaheim, a mere mere blocks from Disneyland, and they're offering discount tickets. I don't think Disney is any more moral today than they were back then, so I wonder what changed. See, one of the things that seems to make things worse is that if you don't hold the same view as those who are calling people to, to build up these barriers, calling people to object, if you're, if you're one of the people who still calls them French fries, then you're on the outs also. You're as bad as those evil, not evil, but perceived evil friends. You get canceled or cut off. And all of these cancellations and protests seem to set up barriers. They seem to set up people as righteous or or unrighteous, as good or bad, as clean or unclean. And while social media seems to have ramped things up in recent years, this is not a new problem because Jesus was dealing with it in his day. You see, during his earthly, earthly ministry, Jesus was frequently pushing people to look at their biases, look at their prejudices, look at the things that they were doing to ostracize certain groups of people. And we see that in the, in the passage we're looking at today. Some people call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard because he chose to hang around with people who had those vices. He was called the friend of sinners because he called dishonest people tax collectors and immoral people, an adulterous woman, he called them to follow him, to leave their old ways and to follow him. But Jesus seemed to be in the business of breaking down bad bias barriers. And so today, as we consider the encounter with the Samaritan woman, we're going to look at bad barriers that he broke down. So if you have your copy of God's word and want to kind of follow along we're going to look at what the passage that Brian read and, and consider some things all the way through verse 45 of John chapter 4. And I, th- I find it interesting in that, in the passage we read, you know, Jesus has this very interesting conversation with this woman. And, and from our perspective, we might think, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus talked to women all the time. But I also found there... Their conversation enlightening and full of lessons that we can learn. In fact, I think one of the underlying lessons is this, that Jesus was not confined by the cultural barriers of his day. He was more concerned with the truths of the Bible and the advancement of the kingdom than he was with man-made traditions that were put in place to keep people from sinning. And so as we consider this passage today, we're going to look at some of the cultural barriers that Jesus broke down in this one encounter because he broke down a lot. He bridged the gap between two different groups of people all the time. And so we're going to look, first of all, at the cultural barriers that he looked at, that he worked worked through. You see, there are several things that Jesus does to reveal to us what he thought about the cultural barriers, that divide that was in his day. And first of all, we see in verse 4 that Jesus walked through a, de- a defiled land. Now, I call it defiled not because it was really defiled, but that's how Jewish people at that time perceived the land of Samaria. But if you were to look at a map, you would see Judea in the south. You can see it kind of in that orangey color. And Samaria right above that in blue and on up to Galilee. And so one of the things, Jesus, the Bible said that Jesus was in Judea and, and he went to, to Galilee up north. And it says he had to go through 
Samaria. He, he heads north. And the tension between Jews and Samaritans ran so deep that according to some Jewish scholars, a good Jewish person would avoid Samaria at all costs. They would cross the Jordan River and go up the other side in order to not be corrupted by walking through this defiled land. And yet Jesus walks right through it. He takes the shortest route between two points. You see, the region of Samaria was formed during a time in the Old Testament when King Sol- right after King Solomon reigned, he had one kingdom. It was all Israel together. But when his son took over, several of the tribes in the south were elite, uh, loyal to him, and several of the tribes up north didn't want to follow what he did. So they broke off and became the nation of Samaria. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see that called Israel and Judah, Israel up north, Judah in the south. And because of this, and, and the other thing that happened was the people up north changed their religion. They took some things from Judaism and they meshed it, they molded it, they did other things with it. And so they corrupted it. And so good Jews in the south chose not to associate to be corrupted by the Samaritans in the north. And so Jesus broke through that barrier. But in addition to walking through a defiled land, he talked to a woman. Who would think that that was a, a, a barrier that would be there, that would exist? D.A. Carson, a, a modern theologian, says that some Jewish, uh, some Jewish thought held that for a rabbi, for a teacher, to talk much to a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time. And at worst, a diversion from the study of Torah. So for a religious leader, that talking to a woman was a barrier that should not be crossed. And Jesus clearly disregarded this bad cultural barrier, which is why if you look in verse nine, she responds to him because he, he, he says, may I have a drink? And she responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then the apostle John gives us this insight for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But not only was this, she wasn't just any woman. She was a woman of a defiled race. And Jesus broke through the barrier and talked to her. You see, Assyrians, back in the Old Testament, we got to go back and do a little bit of history. Remember, you have that northern kingdom of Samaria. Well, the Assyrians, who were out near where Iraq and, and Iran are today, they had come in and attacked and conquered the northern kingdom. And people began to intermarry. And they, began to, they created a new race of people. And, and so many Bible commentators... Uh, in fact, one Bible commentator noted that uh, there was a rabbinic writing that says um, Samaritan women were considered to be continually menstruating. You think, well, so? Well, in Jewish customs, there was a certain time, a certain amount of time for a woman be- to become cleansed from that. Well, if you're a Samaritan woman, you can never become cleansed enough to worship in appropriate ways. So again, Jesus did not consider this bad barrier worthy to be observed. So Jesus talked to this woman of a defiled race, but she also had a defiled lifestyle. You know, for many strictly religious people, this, this woman would have been considered sinful because of the fact that she'd been married so many times, five husbands she had had. But it's not only the religious people that treated her this way. Look, at, look in your Bibles at verse 6. So Jesus is sitting at this well, at Jacob's well, and he was wearied from his journey and he was sitting by the well and it was about 
the sixth hour. Well, the sixth hour is the middle of the day. It's about noon, high noon, hot noon. Well, most women in that day would go either early in the morning or late in the afternoon, and they would all go together because it was about a mile from town out to this well. Several commentators pointed out that because this was the middle of the day, this woman would have gone to the well alone. None of the other women would have wanted to be around her. They didn't want her corrupting their families. They didn't want her interacting and influencing their children. She likely had some sort of a reputation. Sometimes those reputations are well-deserved And many times, and we all have met people like this, but many times those reputations are really difficult, nearly impossible to discard. And which I think is why when you hear, when you read their conversation and you see some of the ways that she responds to Jesus, you hear this harsh tone in her voice. have Have you ever come across people who have that kind of a harsh Tone, they, they get defensive. They're like, why would you, would you talk to me, a woman of Samaria? And I wonder if this woman had been hurt so many times by her former lovers that she presents this hard edge in her personality in order to drive people away, setting up a sort of defense mechanism. And yet Jesus looks right through that and he engages her. He sees who she is, that she has value, that she is hurt. He doesn't comment too much on her lifestyle, but he sees her for who she is and offers her hope in a future. But you see, this isn't the only time that Jesus does this. He sets up this pattern of, of um, interacting with people. We've already talked briefly about it, but elsewhere in Scripture, we see that Jesus was working with a tax collector. These guys were seen much like we might see the IRS today. They were, or actually not, not the IRS. We would see them like politicians. They're a little bit sneaky. They're a little bit deceitful. And yet Jesus welcomed tax collectors into his group. He also demonstrated the love of God by forgiving an adulteress. We're going to see that in, a, in several weeks when we get to John chapter 8. You know, this woman was caught in adultery and, and, and all these other religious leaders had already cast judgment. And Jesus looks at them and said, well, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. They wanted to trap Jesus. And yet he broke the trap. He called this woman. He said, woman, your faith has saved you. Don't sin anymore. Don't, just stop that. Her value was not in her mistakes, but in her creator. And he called her to leave that sinful lifestyle. But in addition to working with a tax collector and forgiving a sinner, Jesus showed the love of God by healing the ceremonially unclean. And in Matthew chapter 8, we see this beautiful picture of Jesus walking on his way to go heal a child. And there's a whole throng of people around and people are bumping into him. And this lady who had been bleeding for years internally, doctors couldn't heal her. The religious leaders couldn't heal her. She goes up and touches Jesus' garment. And she knew that because of her condition, she would immediately make him unclean. And yet it was worth the risk. And she touched him and was immediately healed. Jesus turned to her. Not in anger, but in love. It says, your faith has made you well. He also demonstrated the love of God for us by touching and raising the dead. Jesus wasn't worried about ceremonial cleanliness 
Matthew 8, he, he touches a, a, a corpse to bring it back to life. We could go on and talk about the ways that Jesus was willing to minister to people of a defiled lifestyle. But let's just take some cultural or contemporary considerations just briefly. See, I think that as a church today, we could learn a lot from the actions of Jesus with the Samaritan woman and how he worked with these other people. But I wanted to make sure it's clear that Jesus never did condone their lifestyles. He didn't condone the Samaritan woman for all her misgivings in marriage. He didn't condone the woman who was caught in adultery. He, he didn't judge them in that way. He called them to live lives of holiness. But he didn't reject them on the basis of their sin. So let's think about this in a couple of contemporary ways, and I will probably offend some people. Let's think about the LGBTQ community. There are people who want uh, society wants us to embrace and to endorse every lifestyle, every choice that there is. And so much so that people that many churches have gone and re um, gone back to Scripture and said, well, that's not what this means. Sexual immorality doesn't mean this. It means. Scripture is clear. The only relationship Sexual relationship that scripture endorses is one between a married, you know, husband and wife in the bond of marriage. Everything outside of that is sin. And and but never in scripture are people identified by that. They're seen as a man or woman, people born in the image of God. So what do we do? How do we handle it? Because frankly, this is a difficult situation. That we find ourselves, if we're going to be faithful to the word of God and loving to people who don't see the word of God that way, how do we bridge that gap? How do we break that barrier without coming across as judgmental? Well, I think, first of all, we need to stay out of the social media fray. It's so easy to hear somebody say something and yell back, all caps. Just stay out of it. And it's not that we're letting... The fight go on. It's that we need to fight in different ways, if we even really call it a fight. But I think it's also important to be willing to have conversations with people in that community, with people that we don't see eye to eye with. Invite them over for a meal. Have conversations with them. And I think in those conversations, aim to identify them as image bearers of God. If you, um, there's a, a book review that we're going to release this week on, on a book that I talked about a, a couple months ago called um, Confronting Christianity. And in it, the, the author addresses this idea of dealing with people who, in that LGBTQ community. So often people want to identify themselves by their sexuality rather than identifying themselves as being a man or a woman of God, not a man or an image bearer of God. Danielle and I have a, a good friend, and, and he spent a week staying at our house. He calls himself a gay Christian man, and we had countless conversations late into the evening, and over, you know, it just, we would talk, and we, I knew we weren't seeing eye to eye on this. I kept wanting to say, you're not this. 
You're a man created in the image of God, not identified by your sexuality, not identified by your orientation. And he, he refused to see it that way. But in love, he stayed with us. We shared meals together. And we continue to text and call and, and interact. And by the grace of God, we'll continue to have a relationship. Because ultimately, and I think this is where as Christians we get a bad rap. It's not for us to judge. Jesus is the judge. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's not for us to judge. He has called us, like Jesus showed us by example, to build bridges so that the work of God, the conviction that comes through reading the Word of God, can be present. But let's, since I'm stepping on toes, let's step on another toe. Politics. I don't know if Jesus would identify with any political party, but I would bet that he would have friends from every party. How often do we, are we willing to sit down and have a conversation with someone from that party or from that group to try to understand why do you think the way you do? Why is that the right solution for you? And I think if we would have more conversations like that as a society, we would be in a better place. But as Christians, which is more important to me, that's where we have the opportunity to be heard, when we can build that relational capital, when we can bridge that gap and say, let me, hear, let me understand you. Can I help you understand how I see this? And we may not ever, I mean, we're never going to, it's just never going to happen because we're all fallen human beings that we're all going to be together like that. But and when you look at the disciples Jesus gathered around him, he had a zealot, a guy who wanted to take up arms to overthrow the government. He had one of those guys on his team. Sounds a little familiar. But he also had people who were pacifists. He had people who were reactionary. He had people who, who were on the side of the government, the tax collectors. What about race and ethnicity? I realize that as a society, we, we're throwing all these labels in on people, on all these things. There's CRT this, and there's Black Lives Matter that, and there's all these things, all these divisions that we want to bring into play. But we, as believers, I think need to recognize that these are all, everyone, our people created in the image of God and are worth our time to get to know. Or... What about people with mental illness or disabilities or differing abilities? How do we serve and love families who struggle with that? You know, sure, we can pray, but would Jesus call us to do more? I'm so grateful that years ago, and obviously this was long before I came, but that, that some folks were led to, op- to put that room together in the back that kind of helps people with sensory challenges. It's, it's there to support people with special needs. Sometimes the music I know is loud. Sometimes it's just too much. But is that enough? Is that accommodation all we can do as the body of Christ to help people who struggle, who wrestle with that in their families, in their homes? How can we come alongside and support? And I, I wish I had better answers. I wish I could 
I mean, maybe like I know that McLean Bible Church has has this whole Jill's house ministry where they have these weekend retreats for families with children with special needs as a way of 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 supporting them. But what can we do? And I'd love to hear your ideas at some point because I don't have I don't have all the answers. But I think the underlying question for us to think about is who is the good news of the gospel for? Who is it for? Revelation tells us that there will come a day when we'll be with, we'll worship around the throne with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Which means it's for everyone. So Jesus broke through bad cultural barriers by going through a defiled land and talking to a defiled woman of a defiled race and a defiled lifestyle. And beyond all that, he was willing to drink from a defiled cup. We see that in verse 7 when he asks her for a drink of water. John includes this parenthetical statement that Jews don't eat around or with Samaritans. Another translation of that is, has read, Jews don't use the dishes that Samaritans have used, and yet he was willing to do that. And I think part of that gets back to that Middle Eastern culture of hospitality. He was, when we have a meal together, there's something beautiful that happens across the table when you can interact And it's not about watching the food go in. It's about that time, that fellowship. And Jesus was willing to show a sign of friendship and trust. He was willing to drink from the cup that she gave him. But not only that, we see later on, and this is after the part of the passage that Brian read, that Jesus defiled worship, so to speak, by removing its location-specific limitations. You see, further on in their conversation, she starts to take things spiritual. And she says, well, you Jews worship in, in Jerusalem and we worship here on Mount Gerizim. We, which is the right place to go? And Jesus basically says, well, salvation comes from the Jews. He was a Jew, is a Jew. But in addition to that, my, there, the day is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter where it's going to happen. It's not about a mountain. It's not about this temple or that. It is about the people of God worshiping God. But beyond that, the, you know, I, I think that Jesus broke through these barriers. But to what end? What did it result in? And I think what we see is there are several results of him ignoring cultural barriers. And the first one is this, that it allowed him to, to seize a divine moment. Jesus walking through, having to go through Samaria, going through a place that none of his followers would want to go through. It created this opportunity for him to interact with this woman. And yet because he chose to act differently than what the culture expected, he was able to be there at that appointed time. He was There at noon, just as she was, and what's more than that, that opened the doors of impact for so many other people's lives. You see, ignoring cultural barriers not only allowed him to seize that divine moment, but allowed him to set this woman free. You see, think about that. Think think about her being there in the hottest part of the day, having no friends, having now no husband, and she's living with a guy that's not her husband. She's alone, and none of the other women want to talk to her. Men likely see her as an object. And day after day, she is caught in this cycle of going to the well, getting the water, and coming back all alone. And yet, because Jesus pressed in, because he 
talk to her because he engaged with her. He was able to bring up the social conflict that was there. I mean, why would he give her the time of day? That's her perspective. But in addition to that, he was able to address a spiritual struggle that she pushes back inquiring about the nature of the water that he was offering to her. He was offering living or moving hope-filled water, life. Jesus was giving her eternal Life. And we begin to see that overflowing in her life as she comes back to the people in town. She leaves her water jug there and runs back into town and says, hey, come out to the well. Come see the guy who told me everything I ever did. And imagine what it would be like to be one of the Samaritans. You? Jesus told, talk to you? So they began to come out. But in addition to that, Not only did Jesus have these opportunities with that woman, but he uncovered the spiritual blindness of the disciples. You see, the disciples, they had gone into town to buy food, and they came back out to where Jesus and saw him talking to this woman and said, What? Why are you talking to her? John chapter 4, verse 27 says, They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? They didn't ask him those questions, but it appears that they were thinking it. And I think one of the beauties of Scripture is that it allows us to see people in fallen ways. Even the best people, even Jesus' people, his disciples made mistakes over and over again, which really gives me hope because of the mistakes that I make day in and day out. But beyond marveling, beyond their marveling at the fact that Jesus was talking to this woman, they asked him about eating And Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 31 to 33, they said, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said, has somebody brought him something? And just as the woman was initially focused on the physical water, the disciples were clearly focused on physical food and they were blind to the spiritual opportunity that was in front of them. Look at what it says in in verses 34 to 38. It says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice. For the saying is for here, the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor, and others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. I can almost imagine Jesus looking out at a field, and he says, do you not say, do you not look at the field and say, hey, there are four months, and then the harvest, and then he turns back and look at this throng of people that heard the testimony of this woman coming out to meet him. He says, look, the fields are white unto harvest. See, ignoring these cultural barriers, I think, also allowed Jesus to satisfy the spiritual needs of the Samaritans. John writes in verse 39 that many Samaritans believed on her testimony, on the testimony of this fallen, sinful Samaritan woman. And I think 
It speaks volumes about the importance of seeing people for who they are and ministering to them still. They were so excited. She was so excited about what she experienced with Jesus that the testimony of this goodness began to well up inside of her. And almost out of curiosity, the people of town began to come to Jesus to see this man. But John writes that many more believed because they heard his teaching. She was just a conduit. She was just an instrument, a vessel, bringing people to Jesus. Her testimony piqued their interest. His teaching captured their hearts, so much so that he stayed there for another two days. They compelled him, please stay, we want to know more. And by ignoring and even breaking these cultural barriers, Jesus seized a divine opportunity and ministered, not only to this woman, but to that entire city. And demonstrated God's love for all humanity in front of his disciples. I think it's important for us to understand in in, in conclusion. there There are Samaritans all around us. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And we might not say that we hate this person or that person. But I think there are times when by our actions we communicate that we do. So the question is, are we willing to build bridges? Are we willing to break barriers that are there in order to share the good news of the kingdom with them? Who are my Samaritans? Who do I fail to see for who they are versus the sin that might so easily entangle their lives? What is God leading you and me to do about those barriers, about those people? Where do we, where do I need to confess my sin of bigotry and prejudice when it comes to certain groups of people? But I think it's important that we recognize that Jesus not only broke through barriers with this Samaritan woman, but he broke through barriers that we really can't understand fully. See, being part of the Godhead, the things that he experienced in heaven, the things that he knew, knows, being God himself, and yet he knew that there was this divide between him and us, divided by our sin. So he built a bridge, he broke through a barrier between us and him by coming to earth, being found in human likeness, as it says in, first, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, taking on the very nature of a servant, putting skin on, our skin on, not just to relate, but to live the life, the perfect life that we could never live. And then the die, the death on the cross that we deserve. So we're going to consider that. We're going to reflect on that in just a few moments as we take the Lord's Supper. But I want to encourage you, if you have not yet trusted in what Jesus Christ did, because he didn't, he didn't only go through Samaria. He went from heaven to earth, lived that perfect life, died a death. For God made, the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. 
Bible also says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, after his death, raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's a step of faith. Jesus built a bridge, and it looks like a cross, so that you and I would have a relationship with God. Let's pray together, and then in just a few moments, we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. God, we do thank you for... Lord, thank you for this example that we see in this encounter with the Samaritan woman and the people in Sychar. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for the way that you bridged the gap of eternity for us. Grant us faith to believe. Grant us the ability to trust you fully. God, help us. Help us in the way that we live as your people called out by your name. May we be people who preach good news by the way that we interact and love those around us. Help us. Give us wisdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.